Hi there. Hi. 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 Hey, do you remember the other week I talked about? Um, no, I've forgotten it immediately. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, probably just did. like, sure, I did. Love you're amazing. So interesting. <laughs> I was talking about something I'd watched called The Song of Lunch, and it was a 55-minute BBC TV You've drama. been promising to bore me on this for ages, yeah, I know. so I'm just going to like pour myself a glass so, of water and Alan Rickman, have at it. Alan Rickman, Emma Thompson, acting out this basic piece of narrative poetry by a guy called Christopher Reid. Anyway, I downloaded the poetry to have a look to see how accurate it was, and it was very accurate. Anyway, I took a photo well, of you, a bit of it. You're just fact-checking Alan Rickman, okay. <laughs> No, I just wanted to make sure if they – did they actually do the whole poem or how did they do it? Because obviously they do occasionally – a lot of it's coming out of Alan Rickman's head. It's thought-tracked. Right. But then sometimes they'll speak – he and Emma Thompson oh, speak dialogue. Okay. So they have – they obviously haven't been exactly true right. to the poem. Anyway, but I just thought I'd bring you a little bit of it to read because it'll give you – and you can knock it over really fast. I just thought it'll give you a sense of – what it's like and so you have to imagine this read in Alan Rickman's voice right so can you just can you hear it's my really setting yourself up to fail here aren't you can you, can you just can you yeah. hear my nasal Queenslander voice and impose over the top of it Alan Rickman's slightly sardonic posh British sounding voice um okay this is how the poem opens the song of lunch he leaves a message a yellow sticky on the dead black of his computer screen gone to lunch I may be some time his colleagues won't be seeing him for the rest of the afternoon. Rare joy of truancy, of bold escape from the trap of work. That heap of typescript can be... Oh, sorry, that heap of typescript... Alan Rickman does this all the time, stumbles over his words. <laughs> that heap of typescript can be left to dwell on its thousand defences against grammar and good sense. His trusty blue pen can snooze with its cap on. Nobody will notice. Oh, nice use of snooze. He shuts the door on the sleeping dog of his own departure, hurries not too fast along the corridor, taps the lift button and waits. To meet even one person at this delicate juncture would sully the whole enterprise. But he's in luck. The lift yawns emptily. He steps in, is enclosed and carried downwards to sunlight and London's approximation of fresh air. With one bound, he is free. Ah. <laughs> it's good, isn't it? So, hang on. So this is so this poem is performed over an hour of television. Yeah. So what you when huh. you're watching that, yeah, you're hearing that in Alan Rickman's voice, thought tracked, and you're watching him leave the yellow sticky <gasps> and stand at the elevator and kind of look around like nervously, like is anyone going to spot me, interrupt me? And then so he's acting out what you're hearing with his great voice, and then he's you know wow. gets to the restaurant and he's waiting for Emma Thompson, his former lover, to arrive. Um, so yeah, it's it was great. I really really loved it. Oh, okay, so now I find myself massively interested in that. I thought this yeah. was going to be boring just because. Oh, know. I think you would really like it. I yeah, but um, don't take my word for it, Annabelle Crab. Um, have a look at it yourself. But, so yeah, where do you find it? The Song of Lunch. Just Google it. Just get it off of Amazon or Booktopia or yeah. go to an old-fashioned bookstore and buy it. Yeah. It reminded me a bit of – do you remember Dorothy Porter, the Australian poet who yes. wrote Monkey's Mask? Yeah, I do. Yeah, so narrative narrative poem. It's It was um, really great. Do you know also what I did when we got back from uh, WA was I went to see in the cinema. They played at Palace Cinema – a recording of Billy Joel live at Yankee Stadium recorded in about 1990. Sorry, what? <laughs> and you you specifically went to the... Yes. Or did you fall over in the shower and find I... yourself there? Like, I'd be like, what? What's sort of... Wow. So your leave is really taking you it to is. some weird places. It is. You're and just... I love it that I can so... just go, yeah. 
I'm going to go to that. Where, have a little how look. did you find out about that? You're just I looking was through looking... the Billy Joel classifieds? Or... <laughs> <laughs> no, because so when I went looking through the Dendi and I saw Prima Fasci showing, <laughs> I thought, oh, the Dendi, they have a lot of interesting, once you school, spool beneath, you know, Astro Boy and whatever. Things that people want to watch. <laughs> Top Gun, <laughs> once whatever. Once you get past that once stuff get that past... people will show up to <laughs> and you get to the lease sales division. The Dendi, they have some really interesting content. And I thought I should keep more of an eye on what cinemas like the Dendi and the Palace have, right? Because it's full of stuff that idiots like me are massively interested in. Um, eccentrics like me, I should say. Anyway, so then I see, <laughs> oh, they're playing this one night only screening of this concert that was recorded at Yankee Stadium in 1990. Billy Joel's touring Australia in December. And so I thought, and I went to Billy Joel at the Brisbane Entertainment Centre in about 1991 and I thought, I wonder if it's the same concert. Anyway, it was a big deal because Billy Joel's from the Bronx and so Yankee Stadium, blah, blah. Anyway, so I went to have a look at it, me and, you know, your brain works. 30 other Billy Very Joel tragics. unusual. <laughs> Did you all, um, were you all dressed similarly? What is the what is the dress code for contemporary Billy Joel fan? Well, it was interesting having a look at the demographic. Yeah. It was a lot of middle-aged and older kind of people. Yeah. And, yeah, I really, I, I almost felt like going up to some people and going, why? you here? I know why I'm here because I'm a weirdo, but why are you here? I really, I so wish you had. <laughs> I so wish you had. So one of the reasons I wanted to see it was when you and I were on a holidays in WA, I don't know if you're going to remember this moment, but we were sitting around talking and the kids were watching something on TV and my attention got completely pulled and it was, they were watching like the equivalent of Rage or something and the film clip for Thunderstruck by ACDC came yeah. up. Do you remember this moment? Yeah, I do. Yeah. And I, I just was riveted by it. I have seen the film clip before, but I hadn't seen it for years and years. In fact, I Googled it later and it was directed by a really famous video clip director in a very famous location in London that's been used in other film clips and stuff. And it was, I mean, Thunderstruck is an incredible song. Here we go again. We're going down a boring music deep dive. Thunderstruck. Just putting the timer on. Thunderstruck's got about. You're not to go over six and a half minutes. (laughs) Go. Thunderstruck has got about five or six really different interesting hooks in it from the to the thunder. Like there's lots of different hooky bits in it. And then this film clip, oh, my God. So they've got a bit of glass in the stage that when – is the guitarist Angus Young? I can't remember who's who in ACDC. When he's doing that thing across the stage, you're looking up at him doing it. Right up the shorts. And they've got this venue jammed with people, including these balconies that are around, and they've clearly got a camera on a big kind of dolly, although you never see any cameras in shot. I don't know how they do it. And everyone's just dangling off the balconies and going nuts to this amazing song, which they've just shot it. The way it's shot captures the, like, just intensity of that fantastic song. Anyway, so that was kind of influential on me wanting to see the Billy Joel. Yeah, back to Billy Joel, sorry. (laughs) Just like Quick detour into ACDC, back to Billy Joel, more my speed. But I just thought, yeah, when when concerts or, you know, songs are filmed in a really great way, it can be really, I mean, it's obviously not as good as being there, but it can be kind of compelling. But, I mean, it just wasn't, I mean, I know a lot of the back, you've done surprised to know the back catalogue of Billy Joel. It just wasn't... It just wasn't that well done. It didn't kind of hook me in. It didn't make me feel like, oh, I really wish I was going to see Billy Joel when he was out here. It made me appreciate Billy Joel. But also some of those guys, he's got a lot of bells and whistles in his piano play. Listen to me about shit-getting Billy Joel's piano playing. (laughs) Billy Joel's piano playing is really good. But they do have a lot of bells and whistles, those guys, that make their piano playing showy. And that's fine because it's a big it show look, and he is a showman yeah. and it has to look showy. And also it just made me think a bit about Are them. you questioning his fingering? 
know. I it was such a eighties time capsule. It just made me think about things like, firstly, how much of a debt eighties music and earlier and current owes to black backup singers. And there's that amazing doco about. Have you seen that? I think it's called Thirty Feet from Stardom. Have no. you ever seen that? Oh. oh. It's incredible about the absolute artistry of those people who are making um, some of the biggest rock acts in the world sound amazing. Wow. But also it made me think, so it's a real time capsule to the 80s basically because there's a lot of sax on stage and oh there's quite a God. bit of Billy Joel playing the harmonica. Are the saxophonists going to come back sometime? Is sax going to come back? I just feel like you were ripped off if in the 80s because you would have you could have learned sax thinking I'm going to be the coolest person in the Forever. world. I'm just going to be pulling sex like you wouldn't believe. And then suddenly, gone. Sax drought. Uncool. Sax drought. What? Who killed the sax? I'm going to say Kenny G, but I don't really know. Some, the sax became did, did, uncool. Was the Clinton moment the jumping of the shark of the sax? Let me just Google sax uncool and see if someone's done like, <laughs> there's probably a whole podcast giving an audio history, but it did feel like it was Look, very I think cool. it's about time you did Thoroughly Estrange another slice of the wind instrument playing community because <laughs> like the, the tuba players have recovered. I think the sax people. Yeah, I don't. I just don't know. I mean, it was cool because it was in like every kind of, you know, film clip. Rob Lowe played it in St Elmo's Fire. So he did. But then I remember Kenny G came to be considered really... Daggy. Yeah. Yeah. And so... From the get-go. I mean, was Kenny G ever cool? I assume that, I mean, how did he get famous? He must have been cool for a bit. Yeah, definitely. Well, wasn't he playing on... Um, he played in a couple of big films that used sax in the soundtrack, but... <laughs> There's this guy that you can look up on YouTube. He's called—I don't can't believe this rabbit hole has gone down. But he's called Sexy Sax Man. What? <laughs> what? I just one day I'm going to print out and frame your Google search term history because it would be like—it's the funniest thing ever. The meanderings of a drunk spider. Honestly. It's the funniest thing ever. So it's this guy who just shows up in. I'm sorry. So just refresh. What's he called again? Sexy sax man. Sexy sax man. And he man. shows up in public places with his sax. Is he sexy or is it a bit of a reach? No, oh. He's absolutely ridiculous. He shows up and he'll be dressed in like, you know, just a sort of barely there singlet like dudes used to wear in the 80s. Oh, he, what? The and, scoop singlet? And he starts play, he starts playing. So it'll be like a food court in a mall. So and he just careless plays, whisper. Yep. And he just plays that over and over again until security comes. <laughs> and he does it in all sorts of locations and it always involves him getting called away by security while he's still playing. <laughs> oh, you're gonna have a hobby, don't you? <laughs> do you think do you think because you're one of the most sort of strange people I know, <laughs> do you think that you'll end up doing something like that? Just like one with my thing, cello. With your cello. I don't know. I don't know, but my God, what are the on um What about I've just completely sorry if this is too much information. We can edit this out if you don't want me disclosing this. But we uh, like a, a, Murph and Gwen and I got a message from Lee the other day in the morning saying I'm bleeding. I'm bleeding from my foot. Oh, I cut my toe. Yeah, I cut my toe. Cut my toe. <laughs> Couldn't get it to stop bleeding. And she's oh. like how would I get that to stop bleeding? We're like, uh, put a thing on it, apply pressure and elevate. What I meant was how can I get it to stop bleeding and not interrupt my day? I didn't want to sit down and elevate. And she's like, well, no, I'm on my feet. I'm moving around constantly. I don't want to sit down for three minutes. I'm like, well, uh, that is the 
entire thing that you have to do now if you want to stop bleeding horrifically from your toe. And she's like, no, nah, no, nah, making the kids pancakes. I'm like, yeah, but really? It became problematic because I was standing up because it's my toe. Yeah. It just kept bleeding and then it was like at least bleeding through Band-Aids. And it, anyway, I thought and it was going to And you kept complaining about fine. it despite <laughs> ignoring well, the one the end, effective thing. After two hours of it bleeding, I just accepted that I was going to have to sit down so and stop it bleeding. I'll just explain my segue there. I just think there's not sort of a huge conceptual jump between man who plays sax in public places until he gets, like, dragged away and woman who bleeds to death because she had to make pancakes. Can I also tell you, in the Mm. 2020 broadcast on US federal, you know, US presidential election night, I think I've still got it on my phone, actually, because I went and got it on iView and recorded it on my phone to show someone who, the person who introduced me to Sexy Sax Man. David Lipson was doing a package out of New York Mm -hmm. And literally three seconds before it cut to me live on air, he had a busker on the streets of New York playing. <laughs> now, it wasn't Sexy Sax Man. It was just some random person playing Careless Whisper. But now you can see how much I'm laughing and how the effect that has on me. Can you imagine what went through my head? When I'm just three seconds before it cuts to me, some dude in here. <laughs> And I swear you can see my face for a beat. It just is this, like, flash of, like, can't think about that. Got to read on. <laughs> I'll send you the clip later. Oh, can't wait. Oh, God. Can't wait. <laughs> I'll put it with my precious things. You are a, you are a weird unit. Okay, now this is leading me into a serious thing. <clears throat> Reading this book. Oh, right, okay. This has been an extended wind-up for a serious point. Okay. Okay, I'm reading this book called... Play It Again, An Amateur Takes on the Impossible by Alan Rusbridger. Oh, I've read that. You've read it? I've read that. Wow. You, it must have bored you, Richard. Uh, no, I quite enjoyed it. But wow. look, I read it because okay. I was about to interview Alan Rusbridger. Oh, so okay. I, um, Alan Rusbridger, former editor of The Guardian, is this, you know, sales-style lunatic <laughs> who decided... I'm going to learn to play the piano, and he he, he learned could it so play that the he piano. Could, well he was yeah. he was learning to play the rack three or something. What, it was what, a what Chopin was it? ballad. Chopin, right. Yeah, he could he clearly could play the piano mm. to a quite high standard, but then he decided this is considered one of the hardest hardest pieces, and so he decided he's going to learn it. But yeah, the reason I thought it would bore you, rigid, is the fingering. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I probably skipped a few pages about the intense yeah. fingering. Yeah. There's <laughs> there's a lot of I'm gonna say fingering again a bunch of times, so you may as well just compose yourself. <laughs> oh my God. Even I'm not that interested in are you gonna use the three or the four. Like it's not I feel like I almost need to download the score for the piece of music, which I would have no chance in hell of playing, just to see okay, we're talking about this bit. He keeps talking about the coder all the time and the fingering yeah. of the coder. Yeah. And so I'm like, you know, I need some help. And also I don't I don't love the piece of music that much, which I know I can hear the screams of outrage from the, like, 0.005% of Get in line with the Dickens Society, people. <laughs> and the sax lovers. Yeah, it's – so he's he's given himself, I forget the time period, it's maybe a year or something, and he's editing The Guardian. He's trying to carve out, like, in, invariably he ends up with a maximum of 20 minutes a day to practice this piece, and he really, you know, needs hours. Anyway, he's um, and then it's the year when they've got WikiLeaks and there's just so much going on. I don't know how he's carving out any time to play the piano. Right, and that's when I, I interviewed him at Sydney Opera House. He was out for some reason post WikiLeaks, and I went and interviewed him. And I thought, oh, I better read that short book that he recently wrote about fingering. <laughs> 
it was unhelpful in the WikiLeaks grander scheme of things. But uh, it's, it's interesting. I'm finding parts of it interesting because he periodically goes and talks to musicians about things to do with learning music, and I'm finding it interesting because you know, as you know, I'm becoming a professional cellist. So, <laughs> oh my God, how'd you get onto this book? Somebody mentioned it to me when I said I was having a stab at learning the cello, and they were like, "Oh, you should. You might like Alan Rusbridge's book where he tries to learn this difficult piece of music." Yeah, yeah. He talks about things like. Well, firstly, something I agree with, which is it's kind of meditative and it does set your headspace up for a better experience for the day. But also just one of the things I'm finding tricky and one of the reasons I took the cello with us to WA is because I'm realising, unlike when you're a child, your brain absorbs stuff amazingly. Mm -hmm. And so pieces on the piano that I learned as a kid, I can still roughly play today. They just stick. Whereas if I don't practice the cello for three days and I've been practising a piece, it's I feel like it's almost close to going from scratch when I come back to it. It hasn't wow. like stuck Not in my head. Not to mention, you know, your callus issue. <laughs> and a callus issue too. But so he kind of explores these things, like mm. what parts of your memory, like why are songs that I'm from my childhood, why are they still there? Like yeah. where are they in my memory? And then talking about how... Musicians refer to having finger memory. Obviously, it's not finger. It's not, the memory's not in your <laughs> memory's not in your fingers. It is in your brain. But where's it coming from, and how does that work? And then the interplay between he says he has he's a good sight reader, as am I, and he has bad issues with memory. Right. And he's been talking about, and I've never realised it before, but now I've realised, of course, you do do it, which is you get familiar enough with the piece of music that you've partly memorised it which you need to do so you can then direct attention to your fingers. And so, or if you, but yeah, anyway, it's all too boring and technical to bore everyone with. But it's, I'm not, I'm finding it good, but I'm, I thought I would be absolutely loving it and I'm not absolutely loving it. So a bit like the Billy Joel concert. <laughs> just exactly. like Just starting to wonder if it's me. Solid. Is it me? Not thrilling. <laughs> I don't really do anything for, you know, a given time each day to practice. And, I, you know, I'm just so haphazard in everything in my life. But I've recently started practicing my German. Wow. Yeah. That's a really good thing to do. So I learned German until first year uni. Oh, so, ich spreche ein bisschen Deutsch. Wow. Uh, ich viel vergessen. <laughs> aber if I, if I go to Germany and I have about a beer and a half, I suddenly am quite fluent. <laughs> wow. Um, and I remember um, <laughs> when I went to Davos once when I was, you know, when Howard was going over there and a bunch of Australian journalists went with, there was, you know, in Switzerland, of course, they speak Schweizerdeutsch, which is sort of like German but sort of, Swissified, right? And so I remember kind of turning into sort of like the the group translator because I had this sort of right. vague, you know, sort of German that I could kind of understand and adapt better after wow. a, a beer or two. So, but there's that app called Duolingo, yeah. which all my kids are on. Like, and my 15 year old studies French, and she does 10 to 15 minutes of Duolingo every day, and it kind of rewards you for being on a streak. So oh, yeah. you do it every day, yeah. you get extra rewards. I just can't even imagine how they're even useful. I don't know how an app rewards you in a way that is, you know, actually handy. But um, And she's on like, you know, hundreds of days streak to the extent that wow. if she gets to the end of the day and she doesn't do it, she gets super panicky, Yeah, which is kind of an interesting thing, an interesting mm. discipline. Like there's now a fear response yeah. for her and it's totally irrational. Like nothing bad will happen yeah. if she breaks her streak. And I guess people feel like that about Wordle, Wordle too, right? Yeah, but, I hate it when I when yeah. I miss one. Right. Yeah. Anyway, it's 
I'm actually discovering that I remember heaps more German than I thought. How amazing. Yeah. Does yeah. it test your is it testing your written or your spoken German? All of it. So the exercises are a combination of um so they did it when I signed in and signed up, they gave me a language test mm-hmm. and it was like comprehension, grammar, a couple of spoke like you speak into the microphone. Mm-hmm. Um and and it's basically conversational. Like so right. it Asked me to say in a million different ways, my name is Frau Merkel and I'm the <laughs> Chancellor, <laughs> which is a bit like, okay, am I though? Yeah. Um, and so in every 10-minute lesson, because I've signed up for 10 minutes a day because I'm, I'm not particularly ambitious, there'll be, you know, it'll ask you, it'll say a sentence in German and you have to rearrange the words to that appear on screen to reproduce the sentence. It will ask you to read out a sentence. It will ask you to um, supply a missing word. And it's sort of repetitive. So every lesson, you're asking someone a million times, where are you from? And, you know, that sort of thing. So it's it's interesting. And it, it definitely has set itself to my sort of capabilities. Right. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. And so is it just flooding back the stuff that you know yeah it's just weird that I mean if you asked me I'd say I've probably forgotten heaps and heaps most of the German that I once spoke but like I'm finding that I'm understanding it all and it's kind of giving me a bit more confidence to think oh actually you know I do remember quite a bit it's so funny I did German until it started grade 11 and the strangest things have stuck in my head for example probably other than you know hello wie geht's the things that have stuck in my head are um Ich möchte ein Glas Orangensaft und auch ein Ei. <laughs> Which means, I think, means I'd like a glass of orange juice and, and also an egg. egg. <laughs> yeah. Right. And then also this trip. I remember, mein Hund heißt Lumpy from one of our textbooks. Like some kid had a <laughs> Your dog's dog name called Lumpy. Lumpy. Yeah. Um, the other stuff I remember is a few crazy little songs with some very <laughs> strange lyrics like, Mein Hut, er hat drei Ecken. <laughs> drei Ecken hat mein Hut. <laughs> Und hast er nicht Dreiecken, so ist er nicht mein Hut. Oh, that's actually brilliant. And also I love Billy Joel's cover of that. <laughs> that means my hat has three corners um, and if it doesn't have three corners, it's not my hat. Um, and then there's another one which is really quite black, which is... Um, oh my gosh. Der Han ist tot, der Han ist tot. Der Han ist tot, der Han ist tot. Es kann nichts mehr singen, Kokodi, Kokoda. Es kann nichts mehr singen, Kokodi, Kokoda. That means wow. my chicken is dead, it can no longer sing Cock-a-doodle-doo. Shit. <laughs> It's super it's, dark. I know, really dark. Yeah. All I've got is mein Hund heißt Lumpy and you've gone to like chicken straight to chicken mortality. This is like this. I reckon this could be the strangest episode of Chat Ten ever. It's certainly not what I expected. It's to be not t- what's on the list. About. It's well, That's there isn't sure. even a list. I mean, it's just. We're just That's true. This is what happens when there's not when a there's list. There's no list. Suddenly, okay, I'll tell you about something else I've been listening to. This yeah. is actually far more normal. A podcast called Against the Rules. Michael Lewis's oh, podcast. Yeah. Have you heard this? So Jeremy has listened to all of it. I've listened to oh, yeah, one Jeremy of them on cheating, which he absolutely recommended to oh, me. Okay. Mm. Anyway. So I'm. I just started at season one. It's about. Um, the decline of the ref in American society Hmm. and what that says about society. And so it's really interesting. Essentially it's about neutrality and fairness. And so episode one is about referees and it's talking about how the abuse that referees get has escalated, you know, over the years basically and people don't really want 
a neutral ref. So if a ref makes a call against your team, they're abused. And so he was talking about like refs in the NBA now have security to walk to their cars after games and stuff. Like unbelievable. And so he talks about, and then it sort of broadens from sport to talking about what is the equivalent of, I guess, a ref in lots of situations. So the episode I'm listening to at the moment, for example, is about judges um, in a court situation. Oh, cool. And then there was a really interesting one about art valuers and, and art experts who come and they go, yep, that's a Van Gogh or that's not a Van Gogh or whatever. Oh, fantastic. And he was saying... Often if you have a ref who is, you know, a happy ref, it can be a cause for concern because it might be that they're telling someone what they want to hear. So he was saying in the art world, obviously no one really wants to hear, oh, it's not actually, you know, a the, the, the painting he uses is a da Vinci where there's right. some real serious questions about the provenance of this Leonardo da Vinci, but it has been officially declared a da Vinci. And he's like, because it's exciting when something de- gets declared a da Vinci and then it goes to auction and it sells 50 million and this particular one was the last da Vinci on the open market. Wow. And so he talks about how easily, you know, things can be kind of corrupted. Anyway, it's a really, really interesting premise. And then once he starts kind of talking about it, you realise, oh, yeah, that's kind of fascinating how much. I mean, I think it. he doesn't have an episode about media, but I think it applies to media as well. Right, that yeah. People don't, most people, well, not most people, I'm generalising, but a lot of people do not want journalists who are neutral. They think that they do. They pretend that they do, but they don't. They want their own side given a free pass and the other side held to a ridiculous degree well, of accountability. Well, you always think the ref is bent, you know, when yeah. everything doesn't go your way for your team, right? Yeah. And I guess. So is his thesis that refs, in competitive sport have fallen, I mean, the status of refs. Yeah, and, and just that it's such a difficult job now because the level of abuse. So, yeah. who, again, like journalism, who wants to do it? And then there was a really, I forget who it is who runs it, but there was this really interesting centre which is about refing and also now the use of electronic, you know, technology. So right. third umpire type stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So these days, you know, obviously before that technology existed, the ref's view had to be, you know, trusted. Yeah. But obviously humans make mistakes and you can't now that, mm. you know, if you watch the tennis or something, you'll see the most incredible angles showing like if a yeah. ball is in or out that it's actually in real time gone at 140 kilometres an hour past your eye. So it was that proliferation of sort of technology moving into these sorts of judgment areas is it a is it a product of the fact that we no longer even pretend to expect humans to be unbiased yeah i mean maybe although i i tend to think of the technology as just it's not about compensating for human bias, although, of course, there would be human bias. And human bias doesn't have to be overtly favouring one team or the other. The bias might be that you're tired today because yeah. your kid was up sick yeah. last night. So yeah. your bias is that you're not on your A game because you're tired. Yeah. Whereas, Whereas you've just fallen in love with someone you can't stop thinking about them and so you're just like, oh, shit, missed that thing. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I guess the tech, I, I guess, kind of takes it to a level where, you know, kind of like Luke Long was talking about with us with basketball, it's a different kind of thing. It changes the nature of the game and the sport, right, because um, it has a huge effect on it. So a ref doesn't really – they might still make a controversial call, but then it'll be triple-checked by the electronic technology. And Mm. so, yeah, it changes, you know, the kind of nature of things really. Because there is that feel now, I think, with – I mean, just when you watch the cricket and you go to the third umpire and there's this sense that, right, now we get a final authoritative view on, you know, whether this was in or out or whatever. Mm. So – you know how, um, because I don't really follow or go to sport, so 
but occasionally I'll watch some sport on TV, like I quite like watching tennis, for example. So I'll notice that, I mean, you can see so many amazing angles and shots mm. and replays and all sorts of incredible things that I feel make it very entertaining that obviously you wouldn't see if you mm. were there. Mm. But is it like music where you get something when you're there that you just don't get from watching it on the telly? Oh, for sure, yeah. Right. I mean, and, and the, the group experience of watching sport together is something completely removed from these these technical details. And, right. like, you do, I mean, if you're at the cricket, for instance, you still see on the big screens the, you know, the replay and the third umpire oh, or whatever. Right. But, I mean, your experience there is really more about sitting with people who are roaring and reacting in the same instant the right. same thing that you're seeing which is such a vanishing commodity right in the time yeah. of non-scheduled tv viewing yeah um, event that, stuff that is, there's yeah. actually a sort of commodification that occurs around just group experience yeah. and things i noticed you know we've talked about this before that in a lot of these streaming services that you know a few years ago would release a new series and just and dump it all at once so you could binge it all at once. Remember when binging yeah. was this big thing? Yeah. And now it's sort of coming back towards, well, we're going to feed it out once a week so that you can have all the excitement of looking forward to the next episode and then sit down and watch it with your friends and talk about it yeah. with your friends and so on, which is just a really interesting um, yeah, interesting um, phenomenon. Oh, by the way, I've got this actually in my diary, which is an indicator of just how furiously my family is looking forward to this, but Series 2 of Mysterious Benedict Society. Oh, great. Premiering tomorrow night. So oh, great. by the time this um, podcast is out in a couple it'll of be days, up. it'll yeah, be out. Yeah, my kids oh, my love God. that too. We, are, Good. we have reserved each other's company <laughs> to sit and watch it as soon as it's available. Excellent. Um, now, I can see you're doing that twitchy, you've got to go in a minute, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah but I was just Googling actually to check because um, I was actually going to go to some sport earlier this year. I love which how you was... that, some sport. <laughs> like... I was going to go to the sport yes, earlier the this spo- year. You are no. speaking German effectively now. Like, <laughs> das, das das sport. Sport. <laughs> All I, was... I love about Germans is that they've got this thing called Spazierengehen, which is like a weekend pursuit and it's technically it's just going for a walk right. but it's in Spazierengehen in Germany it's like you go for a structured walk and you stop for lunch at a certain point and it's all organized <laughs> wow. yeah so good nothing like that in Australia so start walking never end and there isn't anywhere to stop <laughs> I was going to go at the start of this year to the Australian Open and Lisa Miller had been I've been talking to Lisa Miller oh, about for years and years yes and I got COVID and it was just it feels like the worst year ever to have missed because it was Ash Barty who yeah. won the women's and you had tickets, had tickets to the, the final like, yeah. women's and men's final that we'd spent a fortune on and I got COVID and couldn't go so Ash Barty won the women's and then the men's was this unbelievable game between Nadal and Medvedev and a friend very kindly bought my tickets from me and he went and, and had all the we fun were texting. That could have been oh, and I was watching it at home. It I went till about one a.m. Sad face when that happened. Far out, yeah, heartbreaking. Anyway. Now I have. Um, can I talk about two things? Yes. Yep. She's already packing a bag. She's like <laughs> far out. Okay. I've just read an absolutely superb book that I think you haven't read and I think you'll love. It yep. was published last year, I think. Um, but I just picked it up. How I don't know. I think I just found it in a bookshop. Somehow I managed to miss it, even though it was, you know, wildly celebrated when it was released. It's called The Performance by Claire Thomas. Oh, okay. um, Who's an Australian writer. And it is just a ridiculously innovative and ferociously readable book. Okay. Mm. So the premise is this. It's all set in a theatre and there's a crowd of people 
watching a performance of Happy Days. Oh. The Samuel Beckett play. Yeah. Which involves an actress who's like buried up to her waist and then up to her torso and then up to her neck in dirt. It's classic Beckett, you know, oh, my God. Anyway, the story concerns three women who are in the theatre. They are separate and one of them is an academic who is there without her husband who's in early stage dementia and has become quite violent and she hasn't told anyone about this. Mm. So she's watching the play and she's also in that way that happens when you're seeing a play, particularly I've got to say a Beckett play where your mind just wanders because there's not mm. a lot going on on stage. There's her, there's a woman who was an orphan, grew up very poor, but then was left a huge amount of money and now she's a philanthropist. And so oh, yeah. at the theatre they're all sort of sniffing around her or whatever. And the third one is um, one of the ushers and she is very worried because outside the theatre it's an incredibly hot day and it's the bushfires, um, Victorian bushfires oh, are yeah. happening. So they're in this air-conditioned space, completely cocooned from what's going on outside. And the usher, her girlfriend, has driven off into towards a fire zone to check on her parents. Right. So there's this sort of thread of worry. Oh, sounds great. And she has to lock her mobile phone in her locker while she's at work. My God, it is. it sounds like a low-action low action piece of work. It is actually... Action packed. Oh, that sounds great. It's and it reminds it's, me a bit of the Museum of Modern Love. Right. I thought about yeah. that straight away. Um, but it's it's so elegant and it's so tense. And it also becomes this I don't know, like a multi-track thought track of busy women thinking about a hundred things at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it does really capture that thing that sometimes happens when you're in a dark theatre where your brain kind of takes a little cue from something on stage and then goes wandering off to recollection or reflection on something. It just captures that so beautifully. And also there's – I should have brought it because I wanted to read out to you this passage where the academic is reflecting on all the things, the demands on her time and brain and all the stuff that she manages at work. And there's this moment where um, she kind of unleashes this thought track diatribe on all the things that she's doing at work and looking after and committing brain space to and she's in her mind she's unleashing this diatribe on her you know supervisor at work anyway it's an absolutely superb piece of work a great oh, that concept really good. and perfectly executed i really really enjoyed it sounds very good now i've got a flight to catch so i hate to be a pain in the ass yeah but i gotta get to the airport baby well happy trails are you wearing that active wear to no, the flight i've got to go home and have a shower okay, i was gonna say mate i mean that's grungy <laughs> How old do you reckon that T-shirt is? Do you know what? It's actually quite new. Oh, is it? Just sorry, guys. <laughs> it's actually um, newish, but you just prematurely it is, aged. It, it is just grubby. Okay, <laughs> it is grubby. Great. Um, okay. Well, on that just delightful <laughs> note. Um, <laughs> 